0: Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. This morning, we're going to start out with the book of Jude, or the letter of Jude, and we're going to segue into a few other areas of the New Covenant. So if you'd like to follow along, just uh, pay attention and do it. I chose Jude because I find this to be a very interesting letter. Unlike the other books of the New Covenant, this one does not address a particular person or a community, Messianic community or synagogue, church, whatever. See, we don't know where Jude was when he wrote this because there's no geographical references. Although he certainly knew his audience and his audience certainly knew him. Even the date that it was written can't be pinned down to within a few years. The closest scholars are willing to get now, somewhere between 66 and 80 A.D. Now, if Jude made mention to the destruction of the temple in 70, then, of course, we would have this reference point, and uh, this, we would know at least it was written after that destruction of the temple. But there's even some confusion about who wrote the letter. The letter that we titled Jude um, The word Jude, the name Jude, comes from the Greek and can be translated Jude or Judas. So Judas was one of the 12 apostles, as we know. But because he died early on and the Messianic communities were not yet established, it's highly unlikely that this Judas wrote this letter. So who does that leave us with? Well, how about Judas, the Lord's brother? Well, if you... uh, Allow me, I'll go to the book of Matthew in chapter 13, and we'll read a few verses here to get a reference. And coming to his hometown, his hometown is Yeshua's hometown, he began teaching them in their synagogue so that they became astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary, and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him, but Yeshua said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. So I was going to start and only use verse 55, but 55 isn't complete without that little context of the few verses before and after it. And so I find it uh, important that we realize that Yeshua is in his hometown, in the synagogue, and he's teaching, and the people were astonished. And that's why they asked, where did this man get his wisdom and these miraculous powers? Isn't this just the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary, and his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, and his sisters, aren't they all with us? You know, in other words, they're saying, these are just common people. Where did this guy come from? So from, but from this, we also know something about the family. We know there were five boys in the family, and there were at least two girls. And, We know that Joseph and Mary were well-known in the community, perhaps because this carpenter shop produced items of quality. When I was a young fella, my dad would buy certain kinds of tools because they would last a long time. The the saws stayed sharp, the uh, screwdrivers were rugged and held up under some abuse, like, using them as a pry bar. If any of you had a screwdriver and you tried using it as a pry bar, you know that the cheaper ones just bend or snap. So I also have the wood plane that he used some 70 years ago, and it still works. So a quality tool lasts a long time. And so back to the carpenter shop and the quality tools. You see, Yeshua did something between his age of 12 and 30 when he started his public ministry. So what would he have done in those early years? Probably worked in the carpenter shop because that's the way it worked back then. As the boys got older, they begin to make their own stuff, which is typically what happens. And it's a natural progression to go from student to craftsman. And they must have had some identifier as to who made what. I mean, if there's, you're working in the shop, you want to know who produced that particular item and so you'd have your own mark on there. Could this be a stretch of my imagination? Well, of course, my my imagination runs amok once in a while, but in this particular case, I think we're on the right track. So that's a good thing about the carpenter shop, but I want to segue here to a person named Justin Martyr. Do you remember Justin Martyr, or hearing about him, reading about him? See, Justin Martyr was born in the year 100, and he lived 65 years. He died because of his uh, belief in Yeshua. Now, <clears throat> he was born and lived in the region of Galilee. Nazareth is part of Galilee, Bethlehem, and Nazareth is where the carpenter shop was located. So he was a historian and a martyr, and he died because he believed in Yeshua, like I said. So what's the connection between Justin Martyr and Yeshua the carpenter? Well, I read someplace that he, Justin Martyr, made mention in one of his writings that the plows of Yeshua the carpenter were still in use, and that was during the second century, sometime between 100 and 165 when Justin Martyr lived. I find that kind of fascinating because we rarely think of Yeshua as a carpenter, and yet he did something before he started his public ministry at his 30 years of age. Now we can take a closer look at verse 55. Did you notice the way the names are written? James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. If someone asks you the names of your brothers and sisters, you most likely start with the oldest and end with the youngest. Same thing here. James was the oldest. Did you realize also that the brothers didn't believe in Yeshua until after the resurrection? And for that little bit of information, I'm going to turn to John. John chapter 7. And starting in verse 1. And after these things, Yeshua was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now at the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths, Sukkot, was at hand. His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may behold your works, which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers were believing in him. Well, there's proof right there that his brothers didn't believe in him, even though they worked with him, they lived with him, they knew him intimately. They just didn't believe in them. But now if you turn to the first chapter of Acts and verse 14, we read, These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with certain women and married the mother of Yeshua and with his brothers. So it was after the resurrection that they became believers in him. So we have the pre and the post resurrection scenario here. So going back to James that I mentioned earlier, he became the leader of the Messianic community in Jerusalem. He wrote James and the brothers appear to be close knit and married. So in 1 Corinthians 9 Rav Shaul, the Apostle Paul, is listing his rights as a minister. And in verse 5 he says, Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord? So we don't know who Jude specifically wrote to, or but we do know why he wrote it. And why is as important today as it was 2,000 years ago. In this letter jude we find a typical salutation in verses one and two and the typical doxology in verses 24 and 25 so you have 25 verses total 21 remaining if you took out the the uh, salutation and the doxology and so what could be so important in the remaining 21 verses well something was happening that compelled jude to put aside his commentary on salvation because in verse three he says, while while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith. Something was happening in that congregation that compelled Jude to change topics. Well, that what happened, what was happening in the congregation is told to us in verse four. It says, for certain persons have crept in unnoticed, these who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So what exactly does that mean? Licentiousness means lacking legal or moral restraints, especially in sexual conduct. See, the grace of God is that we no longer have to pay the penalty for our sins because Yeshua paid the penalty on the cross. Romans 6.23, a verse that we're all familiar with, says the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. So these certain persons They perverted the message of the gospel to mean that if we are no longer held accountable, Yeshua is, then we have the freedom to do whatever we desire. We are unrestrained in legal and moral matters. Hmm. See, so in so doing, these people have denied the Lord Jesus Christ because Jesus never meant for the restraints to be removed. And these people crept in unnoticed, Jude writes, So how does that happen? Well, picture this scenario, if you would. We have a visitor comes into our congregation, and of course he he or she is welcomed. If it's a couple, they're welcomed. And that's how it works. And then you welcome them back, and they come back. And a couple more visits, they exhibit no bizarre behavior. You invite them to a Bible study. They come. They have input. Everything is fine. People are warming up to them. And... Now they've been coming a while. So maybe long enough to be considered regular or or even members. And they've been invited to your home. You're invited to their home. You accept the conversation, turns to what the grace of God really means. Their ideas might be a little different, but these are really nice people and they're not troublemakers. But they're planting seeds of a different doctrine. Maybe they realize they can't get to you, but there are others that they keep trying to get to, and sooner or later they have a following within the congregation. Maybe not so overt, but covert. They prey on the weaker members, they get a hold on them mentally, physically, spiritually, emotionally, and now you have this faction within a congregation. And then it gets when it gets large enough, what happens next? A couple of things. One is you can have a takeover or you can have a split. And we never saw it coming until it was too late. Isn't that something? So Jude writes in verse 12, these men are those who are hidden reefs in your love feasts when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves. Well, think of a love feast as an after-service potluck. We have them every Saturday here. They're blessed times. People get together to fellowship. They talk about the sermon. They sing, they play, we eat. Just fertile ground for these false teachers to work. But now we're gonna segue. We're gonna go to 1 Timothy. Yep, I know it's in here someplace. I found it once. Uh, We're gonna do 1 Timothy chapter one. Paul is writing to Timothy here. And we're going to start with verse 3. He says, As I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, in order that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation, rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussions, wanting to be teachers of the law, the Torah, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. So Paul is writing to Timothy, urging him to stay because he's needed there. And he's needed there because the Messianic community in Ephesus has a problem. The problem are these people who are promoting a different teaching, different from what Rob Shaul was teaching, and he needed Timothy to stay in Ephesus to get things in order. What were the, some of the things these people were doing? They were paying attention to endless myths and genealogies. And why is that important? because it gives rise to useless speculations rather than to God's training. Our focus is is diverted from God. And Ralph Shaul tells us that the goal of this command is love from a pure heart and a clear conscience and a genuine faith. Furthermore, some having missed the mark have turned away to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of Torah, even though they don't understand what they keep saying or what they so dogmatically assert. Now we go turn our attention to Titus. Titus was our new covenant reading here this morning. And that's also important because Rav Shaul is writing a letter to Titus just as he wrote a letter to Timothy. See, Titus is on the island of Crete trying to straighten out the Messianic community that's established there. I'm not gonna go into detail, but Paul is giving Titus some direction, some encouragement and some warnings. Crete was known for its untruthfulness and immorality. Did you ever hear the expression, don't be a Cretan? That's just an idiom meaning don't be a liar. Titus has his hands full on the island Paul warns him in uh, chapter 1, starting with verse 10, for there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this cause, reprove them severely that they may be sound in the faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. So he goes on to say in chapter 3 and verse 9 to shun foolish controversies and genealogies, and strife and disputes about the Torah, for they are unprofitable and worthless." So what was going on in Ephesus and Crete differed from what Jude writes about, but it couldn't have been the same Messianic community because Rav Shaul had trouble, Jude had trouble, Titus had trouble, and even we here at Ra Israel have had occasional trouble during our 45 years of existence. See, Rob Saul was on the alert, Jude was on the alert, Titus was on the alert, and likewise, we must also be on the alert. Uh, Now we'll go go back to Jude. Jude, in verse 11, is comparing three spiritually rebellious men And those folks are um, Cain, Balaam, and Korah. So why these three? Because they're pretty significant. Each of them had rebelliousness of a different kind, but nonetheless, they were still rebellious. You see, Cain's rebellion led him to the murder of his brother Abel. Balaam, if you looked at verse, Uh, Chapter 2, verse 14 in the book of Revelation tells you that Balaam's problem was he kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. Balaam means destroyer of the people and Balak was a king who hired Balaam a prophet to put a curse on Israel, but each time he tried, God would would not allow it. Finally, Balaam advised Balak to invite the people of Israel to join them in their love feasts, where they sacrificed to their gods and offered their daughters to the sons of Israel to commit immorality. Wow, and then we go to Korah, the last one mentioned here. See, Korah's problem was he rose up against Moses Moses, God's anointed, and he and his followers died instantly. And that's in Numbers chapter 16. That's the first time it's recorded that the earth opened up and swallowed these folks uh, alive. But let's take a closer look at Korah's rebellion. He had followers, some 250 men, and they decided to question Moses' authority by presenting an argument that had some truth in it but the conclusion was flawed. The truth is, all the congregation are holy and the Lord is in their midst. The flawed conclusion is, why do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? See, Moses didn't exalt himself above the assembly of the Lord. See, the Lord chose Moses to be the leader. If you remember, Moses did not want the job, but the Lord wanted him to have the job, so he got the job. Korah Korah wasn't one of the tent, just one of the tent dwellers there in the desert. He had a good history, a good background. He was the grandson of Kohath and the great grandson of Levi. And the Levites, if you remember, they were separated from the tribes of Israel and given the task of serving God by performing the service of the tabernacle and keeping the furnishings of the tent of meeting. They were intimately involved in that sacrificial system. The Kohatites were further separated to do the duties of the sanctuary, which included the ark, the table, the lampstand, the altars, the utensils of the sanctuary, and all the service concerning them. They were intimately involved in that service to the sanctuary. So what happened to Korah? Why did he rebel if he knew better? Well, I think his ego got the best of him. I think he started to think he was equal to or better than Moses, and he could do the job just as good as or better than Moses could do it. And therefore, we have the rebellion. And he convinced 250 people he was right. But there were two who weren't totally convinced, but they went along with the crowd anyway. You remember Dathan and Abiram? Well, if you remember, Moses called for all those people to bring their censers before the Lord and these two held back. They got their censers, but they stayed near their own tents. They were part of the rebellion, but from a distance. See, if things went right and the rebellion was successful, then they could say, hey, I'm part of this. I'm successful too. But if things didn't go so well, they could say, well, I was on the really part of it. I kind of hung back. I wasn't sure. It didn't really make a difference because they shared the same faith as the other folks. So they died too for their rebellion. Interestingly enough, if Korah was successful, he would have become the leader and been in the same position as Moses and he'd do what he accused Moses of doing, which was exalting himself above the people. So who loses in that situation? The people lose in that situation. They didn't gain anything. (sighs) But I think Korah might have been just a little bit worse than Moses because I think he would have wound up being a dictator. Of course, the Lord took care of all of that. Moses stayed in charge, as we know. Before we go back to Jude, I need to point out something else. Any one of us can fall prey to our egos. We have to remember that it's God as the one who chooses a person for a position. Yeah, it's based on ability, but also based on their heart towards God. Some people do things in our congregation with little or no recognition, but that's where God placed them and they know it and they're doing what they're called to do. They don't need any recognition. Their satisfaction is knowing they're where God wants them. So they're working for God in those positions. Others are in a higher profile position, but that's where God wants them, and they know it, and they're doing what they're called to do. So be content where God put you to serve him as best you can. Now we're going to go back to Jude. <clears throat> These people who snuck in to the community, the Messianic community, um, came in on unannounced, if you would, unawares. But Jude tells us how these people behave. They're grumblers, they find fault, they follow after their own lusts, they flatter people for the sake of gaining an advantage. So what can we do? Do we just throw up our hands in despair and give up? Do we let the split or the takeover happen? Or do we fight? Of course we fight, hey, we're fighters. How do we fight, though? We have to have a defense against these false teachers. And our defense starts with knowledge. And Jude tells us how these people are. In verse 17, he tells us, you ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's telling us, we know they're going to come. The apostles warned us of that. And he says, that they were saying to you in the last time there shall be mockers following after their own lusts. So we also know how they act because Jude just tells us how they act. And then he also says, these are the ones who cause divisions, worldly minded, devoid of the spirit. Now we know what they do. So we know they're gonna come. We know how they're gonna act. We know what they're gonna do. That's a great defense. So now that we've set up a good defense, we can sit back and wait for them to come, right? Wrong. We're not going to do that because we're going to go on the offensive. We protected ourselves by knowledge, by setting up the defense. Now we're going to build ourselves up in the faith. That's how we're going to go on the offensive. We become mature believers, well-grounded, and we can't get that way by just attending services once a week. We have to stay in the word we read commentaries by proven scholars, we talk to each other, we pray, we keep ourselves in the love of God by being obedient to Him and we wait anxiously for the Lord, anxiously with expectation. Now we have the defense, we have the offense, now we can rescue those that are already ensnared or enticed by this false teaching. See in verse 22, Jude also tells us something. He says, have mercy on some who are doubting. See, these people that he's asking us to have mercy on are the doubters in this new faction, if you would. They haven't been fully ensnared. They're doubting. Have mercy on them. Don't pounce on them. Be a little gentler, a little kinder, more willing to talk things through with them but then you have some that we're going to need a little more force with and jude tells us save others snatching them out of the fire save others snatching them out of the fire what fire the fire of eternal damnation that's hell these people are ensnared and they need some stronger words and firmer action so that's why we back off on the firm the kindness the gentleness and go for the attack if you would, something firmer, a shock effect. And then there he also tells us, uh, let's see here, have mercy with fear on others. Fear, what are we afraid of? Well, we, the fear is that we might get ensnared because of their smooth speech and because of their easy mannerisms and fear that we might be taken in. Um, Jude tells us, contend earnestly for the faith. And when do we stop? Well, when we hit the wall, there comes a time when all our efforts become futile. You're presenting a good, valid, logical argument for the purpose of teaching, learning, edifying is one thing but arguing for the sake of arguing is pointless and we'll find ourselves in that situation from time to time. If we can't keep the discussion focused, we're wasting our time and we need to call it quits. Remember when Yeshua sent his apostles out to preach the kingdom of heaven, to heal the sick, to raise the dead, to cleanse the lepers, to cast out demons? He also said, whoever does not receive you, nor heed your words, as you go out of that house or city, shake the dust off your feet. In other words, leave, don't take anything with you, not even the dust on your feet. Just, you're done, you're finished, walk away. So Jude warned his people, set up a defense, established an offensive plan, and he reminds them that it's the power of Christ that keep those who trust in him for being overtaken by error. And he says in verse 24, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. We must not only be on our guard, we must be vigilant, we must be ready to take action, and we must depend on the Lord because it's from the Lord that we get our real strength. Now when do we stop? When our life is over, our God doesn't run out of energy, and he'll give us the strength we need to endure till the end. So, As I conclude this, may God richly bless you as you journey through your life on this earth and as you come unto these obstacles that I read about, that you're prepared to take action, the necessary action for defense and offense. So Lord God Almighty, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that I can share your word. Thank you for the opportunity here. And we ask a blessing upon All those who heard your word today, that we can indeed live it to its fullest all the days of our life. We ask in Yeshua's name. Amen.